You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, either my eyes are deceiving me or I could have swore that you were at Progressive Chicago with Dr. Charlie Dates this weekend, this Sunday. Am I correct? You are correct. Uh, I had the, the great privilege of being there. Uh, with our friend. Yeah, man. What, what what was your message to the congregation for those of uh, us who, who, for those who don't watch Charlie every Sunday? Uh, yeah, I don't know who doesn't watch Charlie every Sunday. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But now I was just there talking to the folks at Progressive about uh, this idea that we need a new way uh, in the Democratic Party, a new way of dealing with Democratic leadership, uh, meaning that we have to be a good friend to Democrats by challenging Democrats when we're wrong. Uh, and we have to have a new way of dealing with Republicans, uh, meaning that we can't just uh, turn our backs. Uh, we got to engage in conversation because there are a lot of people uh, in Republican areas of the district that I'm trying to represent uh, and really all over the country that do want to find ways to work together. And where we can, uh, we need to be looking for ways to do that. Man, you don't you don't hear too many folks running for office who who, who would uh, say something like that, man. And And I know for you. It comes from a very sincere, sincere place. And it's interesting that you talk about challenging uh, Democrats because uh, we're going to challenge some Democrats and some Republicans on this particular episode, man. So you ready for this? This is going to be a good one. As always, folks, But before we really get into it, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, uh, the Fetzer Institute. Shout out to them for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Y'all know how this goes. We about to get into it. But first and foremost, grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat. Prepare to think like a Christian. Chris, um, in John six, a great crowd of people were following Jesus because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. He also fed over 5,000, and we know that efforts like that can make one quite popular. His ministry at that point was on fire. At this successful point in his ministry, Jesus does, Chris, what very few would volunteer to do, very few Christian leaders would volunteer to do. He preached the bread of life sermon in Capernaum, uh, where he declared he was the living manna and that all must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Even his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? In other words, this is a tough concept to accept. Who can handle it? And unfortunately, a lot of his followers apparently couldn't handle it. In verse 66, we're told that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Chris, and you know this, we've talked about it before. I believe that every Christian especially Christian leaders, 
has to be willing to say things that their supporters or audience doesn't want to hear. It's very easy to start uh, uh, self-censoring once your audience grows. They begin to have certain expectations and you know that many of them might walk away if you offend their sensibilities. And that's their right. But certainly that shouldn't stop us from bearing witness. Surely that should not stop us from saying what we think needs to be said. And Chris, this episode, as you know, is kind of one of those times for the church politics podcast. I'm just going to say it off top, just so you know. If you lean heavily to the ideological right or heavily to the ideological left, if you don't think that certain leaders or tribes should be challenged based on their identity, then you might just want to tune out today. I'll give you a couple seconds to either put your hands over your ears or go to another podcast. You can consider this a trigger warning for partisans. Because we here at the end campaign are no respecters of party or ideology. Everyone, including ourselves, can be critiqued. And challenged. Now, we'll always do our best to address everyone respectfully, but we won't spare necessary criticism. And so let's get into it. Chris, one of the things that bothers me, one of the things I was just talking to my man Oshabar Hartman about. And something that our circle and our leadership council is very frustrated with and also motivated by is how the conservative versus progressive dynamic in American politics basically erases the more centered or traditional black Christian voice. You know the voice that I'm talking about, the voice that values social justice but doesn't see secular progressivism as the authority on the matter. The voice that believes in moral order and accountability and also believes that a large part of American history is an example of disorder and a lack of accountability on behalf of the majority. Now, we know that black people are not a monolith, nor should they be. But there's a critical mass of black people, especially black Christians. Who don't fit into the conservative versus progressive dynamic or this culture war framework. But for some strange reason, almost all of our civic representation on the federal level does fit that mold. Hmm. The people who represent us and look like us on that level miraculously fit into those boxes perfectly. Almost every black Democratic politician in the federal government talks about social issues exactly like secular progressives talk about social issues. Almost every black Republican politician talks about race and justice issues the same way that a Trump supporting conservative would talk about race and justice issues. Now, I don't know about y'all. But I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's by design. And I think we are wrong if we just point the finger and blame other people for it. I think we have to take responsibility for it. I think that some people in our community think the only way to get elected is to imitate one of those two sides. Now, if we want to understand how this happened and how we are in this situation, I think 
the hidden tribe study conducted a few years ago by a partisan. I'm sorry, not a partisan, a partnership called More in Common is helpful. Uh, this was a very thorough study. And, and what it does is it really uncovers what's behind a lot of America's polarization. The study, which we've talked about several times on this podcast, identifies America's ideological tribes. It basically shows us that there are seven primary ideological tribes in America. You have your progressive activists, traditional liberals, passive liberals, politically disengaged, moderates, traditional conservatives, and devoted conservatives. The politically disengaged were the largest group, and that's a problem within itself. But here's the kicker. The smallest and most extreme groups, which are the progressive activists at 8% of the population and devoted conservatives at 6% of the population, those two small groups were the most influential in American politics. Interestingly, although they seem to hate one another, they can't stand one another. They have two very important things in common. They're both primarily white. And affluent. And since they're more financially well off and more active, they have an outsized role or outsized voice in American politics. They control the American political discourse. It's reflected in cable news, talk radio, and other mainstream media. They frame the conversations. They control the most well-resourced interest groups. Think NRA and Planned Parenthood. They've been so effective at controlling the public discourse that many people outside of those two groups have trouble understanding politics outside of the conservative versus progressive framework. Many of us don't see any other way of engaging politics meaningfully outside of choosing one of those two sides. And those of us, like the folks in the AND campaign who refuse to defend or support one of those sides at all times, are considered unserious or timid. Now. I want to be clear on this because this is important too. some of the people in our community certainly genuinely agree with devoted conservatives or progressive activists. And that's fine. I think there are people who genuinely agree with that within our community. So I'm not calling out or saying that they're lying or they're not being genuine in that regard. That happens. It's real. But I have to believe that others have deliberately contorted themselves contorted their public witness to fit into these frameworks and as a consequence reap the rewards for instance some of the people in our community chris have put a little sauce on secular progressivism and called it black not only have we tried to label that authentic blackness, we've said that everything outside of that Western philosophy is an imitation of white conservatism. So either you're a secular progressive, either you follow behind secular progressivism and agree with that, or you're imitating white conservatism. We've effectively erased a very large part of the black perspective. 
So the views of people like Fannie Lou Hamer and Gardner C. Taylor would nowadays be flattened into being the same thing, some would say, as Mitch McConnell. Chris, that doesn't make any sense. It's either very lazy or very manipulative. But you help me out, Chris. Is this something that I'm just imagining or is there something really going on here where this framework, this kind of culture war framework, conservative versus progressive, erases a lot of what the black community could have and bring to bear? Yeah, I think it completely uh, erases a large, large segment uh, of what the black community has really brought to political discourse in this country, uh, in, in my view, for generations, right? It was the black community uh, that was able to stand up in these United States during the time of civil rights uh, and say there is a way to confront the evil of racial uh, injustice through the lens of healing and togetherness, right? That, that was a profound concept. It was a concept that was born in black churches. Uh, and we for generations have been that voice. Uh, and not only has that voice been erased, uh, I think that it is a is a thing of terrible consequence for our political discourse, uh, because what we need in this country right now more than anything uh, is is a a voice, a group of people, a uh, a prophetic type entity uh, that can actually begin to reconcile some of the very difficult things that we're dealing with in our culture. Uh, and it will hearken to that ability uh, to say that there are uh, evils and injustices uh, and things that need to be corrected in our society. And yet the way to do it uh, is through the courageous compassion uh, that can be demonstrated probably in no better way than through the gospel and biblical teaching. Uh, and that core witness uh, is is something that, you know, at, at least me, I don't know about you, Justin, but somebody who, uh, you know, I was uh, sort of raised up around um, some of the older folks uh, in my community when I grew up, and I considered it a proud legacy uh, to be able to receive that kind of, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, compassion and conviction, uh, where you could be unafraid uh, to confront injustice, to confront uh, all kind of social uh, and cultural wickedness uh, without ever bowing the knee uh, to the sort of uh, insensitive, angry, hateful approach uh, to dealing with those things. Uh, and so now that we sit in this place where for whatever reason, and, and, and we have some time here, so I'll, I'll, I have some thoughts about this and I'll, I'll postulate some of that uh, later. But for a number of reasons, we have begun uh, to contort ourselves, at least the leadership uh, certainly has. And, and I, I am afraid that it is starting to, uh, to trickle down into deeper places inside of the community. Uh, but it's a, it's a very sad thing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's why we don't we do it at the end campaign. Uh, as part of why I'm doing uh, what I'm doing in my congressional race, uh, because I think that we have to do all that we can uh, to begin to reverse that trend uh, and to encourage people 
you know, black Christians, black people, and 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 all people uh, who are living in that space between those progressive activists and devoted conservatives um, to really come forward and to own our voice uh, and to understand that it is an important part of our discourse. Yeah, and, and let's be clear, this isn't to say that a black Christian who's in office shouldn't represent everyone in his all of his constituency. Right. We're not saying that they should only represent uh, black people. We we are about slip civic pluralism and we talk about it all the time. But what is odd and what is unfortunate is that in many cases, when they talk about some of the most pressing issues, they're not talking about it with the nuance that you would see in that community. They're talking about it exactly as you would see, uh, you know, these devoted conservatives or uh, progressive activists talk about it. Right. I think that's important. And you pointed out something else that's important, Chris, when we and I, you know, you, you're not a, necessarily a founder, but you were a very important part of the creation and how we fleshed out what the and campaigns framework would be. And when we created this, it was in response to some of these things. The idea that somebody could be within our community, run for office in our community or, or you know, in a broader district and have to become. A midtown progressive when that's not really what they were that's not the people that's not the people that they were primarily representing this happens over and over again and eventually folks just get sick of it and say hey something needs to be done somebody needs to speak out because you can't have these two my very small minority minorities in our population controlling things in the way that they do making everybody who wants to run or be in a, a serious position assimilate to their often very ridiculous point of view that's that's got us into the situation that we're in right now in many and, and that's why i'm not even blaming them i'm blaming us because in many ways this is a failure of identity politics and chris you know that i've said on several occasions that identity politics is actually a rational response to american racism if nobody at the table looks like you, then it's most likely in a country based on our history that you're not being represented at that table. So to me, identity politics makes sense in that regard. However, it is still flawed. And the reason that it's flawed is because somebody can look like you and not represent you. Yeah. And we always have to keep those things in mind. Chris, anything else you want to add to this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think that identity politics uh, piece is very important because, uh, as I said, you know, I have thoughts about why this is. And I think one of the reasons we have that in our uh, community is because for at least a generation, probably more, uh, you have had folks outside of the community perfectly willing to get somebody who is, you know, uh, open to contorting themselves into one brand or the other, either, you know, the devoted conservative or the progressive activist. And then that community of people, that group of folks from outside of the community, I should say, um, puts tremendous amount of uh, money and uh, infrastructure behind getting that person elected. Uh, and the fact that that person looks like the community uh, helps in that effort. So once once they have that, uh, you know, that identity connection, um, which, as you said, is a rational thing, right? Like, I don't think that it is incorrect for people to look at somebody who looks like them uh, and 
value and appreciate that, right? I think that that is, as you said, at, at very least rational. Uh, but too many times folks from outside the community have been willing to put that money and in infrastructure behind those folks. Uh, and so more authentic voices uh, have not been able to uh, to rise up in our in our elections. Uh, and so you do that for a generation or two, and then you look around and the folks who look like us uh, in elected office and in, in, in the, the legislatures of our country, uh, they look like us, but they really don't sound like us. Yeah. Look, identity politics can be manipulated. Right. Representation matters. And I and I believe that I want to be at a point to my kids and show them people in power that look like them. That matters. But the days of thinking it's enough for somebody to look like you and be in office and not be holding them accountable for what they're doing are over. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. Well, Chris, we, we just kind of broke down why we think the black Christian witness is, is being erased in, in, in American politics to some extent. And it's not the only witness that matters. We're just talking about what we know and where we're coming from right now. All right. But let me say this, and this may be the most controversial point that we're making this episode that I'm making this episode. You may disagree. I believe that Georgia's United States Senate race is a perfect example of the dynamic that you and I just described. In other words, the race between two black Christians, two black Christian candidates, Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, is a microcosm of how the conservative versus progressive culture war erases a significant part of the black Christian public witness. Now, by optics, Chris, if we're just going to look at the optics of it, you would think that black Christians have achieved some huge feat right now. Because you have this very major position uh, that may determine, you know, how how the Senate, who's this, who the Senate is run by. Um, and they're both black Christians. That seems to be a huge accomplishment and to an extent. It is. I'm not going to take all of that away. But. If we examine the substance. I think it's fair to say, based on some of the commentary. That devoted conservatives and progressive activists are more so represented by these two candidates than we are. When I say this, I'm not questioning the veracity or sincerity of either of these candidates. I don't know these either guy personally. They may very well believe everything that they are saying, and I'll assume that they do believe everything they're saying. They could naturally fit these two categories really well. That may be. But what I am saying is that in taking some of the positions that they take, they are out of step with a very large number of black Christians. They don't represent that perspective in significant ways, not completely, but in significant ways, yet they're presented as representing our perspective. That's the problem. Not that they can't have other opinions, not that they, uh, some of the, that, that those opinions 
are 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 ingenuine. It's that they don't represent what many would say by optics they're supposed to represent. Now, I'm also going to be straight up with you. I'm not trying to create some type of false equivalency. I don't think that they're equal as candidates or equally problematic. Frankly, I think that Warnock is better prepared based on their public statements, based on how they respond to questions, while at the same time kind of having a greater disagreement with some of his theological statements. But let's look at Herschel Walker so I can tell you what I mean by this. Herschel Walker, to a large extent, has parroted President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump. Now, he's made some statements to kind of separate himself from from Donald Trump right now as he goes into the 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 general election. But generally, he's he's parroted him quite a bit. And I would also say that when it comes to issues of race and justice, he seems to take a very passive colorblind approach. Now, again, I don't have any reason to think that approach isn't sincere, but I can tell you that it doesn't represent a significant portion of black Christians. When Herschel Walker talks about racial justice, immigration and Trump, he sounds like a devoted conservative. He doesn't sound like the majority of black Christians that I know or that even if you look at the polls where their opinions are. Straight up. Similarly. When I hear Senator Warnock talk about abortion and transgender issues, all I hear is secular progressive talking points. I don't hear uh, him talking about it with the nuance that I hear in my community. I don't hear him talking about it uh, in the same kind of way that you hear the legacy of many black Christians talking about those issues. I'm just being straight up. When, when, you know, when he's twice tweeted something basically saying there's no room for the government in a woman's doctor's office. What I know is that that's a, a Planned Parenthood and they're all talking point. And I think it's a, a problem for a faith leader to address such an important issue, such, such an important social and moral issue with talking points from secular interest groups. Whether you like him or not, tell me I'm wrong by saying you should add something to this. I haven't heard him articulate a limiting principle that was that wasn't allowed by secular progressives. I haven't heard him challenge anything at all that the left had to say about those issues. And then when you take that and you add it to the Easter tweet about Easter being bigger than the resurrection and it inspires us to believe that we can save ourselves. I have no choice to believe, but that's an ode to secular progressivism that these progressive activists are being represented in those tweets. More than black Christians are. And I make this critique out of love. I make I make this critique hoping to see these one of these two brothers do good things for everybody, be successful and do great. I don't have anything personal, but we got to call stuff out. If we can't call it out because we're in the preacher's fraternity or, you know, we have these other issues, then we never get to the truth. And all we're trying to do right now is put out the truth. You haven't heard anything coming at anybody, no ad hominems, no making fun of nobody, no nothing said that's unreasonable or malicious.
We're just telling the truth. And if you disagree, guess what? Hit us up. Let us know where we're wrong at. But it better be more than just an identity play. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but I, I, I think that Georgia uh, is a profound example of this. And, um, you know, you, you started off, uh, Justin, you said, you know, this might seem like a huge uh, accomplishment for the black church that you have uh, maybe the most watched Senate race in the United States uh, is between two black Christians. Um, I don't know that we can count it as a huge accomplishment at this point, but I would absolutely suggest uh, that it's a huge opportunity for the black church Um, because there is an opportunity here uh, for the black church to push both of these men uh, in the places where they really do need to be pushed in order to earn uh, the very important vote in the state of Georgia uh, of black Christians, uh, specifically the black black community more broadly, um, and finding ways uh, to really say, you know, to Senator Warnock, you know, there are a lot of folks, you know, African-American people in the state of Georgia who certainly take uh, a much different view on some of the uh, the cultural issues than the uh, you know the community of progressive activists in this country, and you're not just running to uh, to represent progressive activists in Georgia. Uh, you're running to represent uh, the people in Georgia, including and especially uh, the Black Church. And so we need to see a better response. We need to see. Uh, something more weighty and significant. And again, you know, like you said, this is not to question, you know, the the genuineness of thought coming from uh, the senator. Uh, But I do have to believe that having so much experience in the black church, you got to have some awareness of the fact that there's a lot more to say in this conversation than, you know, there's no room for the government in, uh, you know, a woman's doctor's office. I mean, that's, that's, I'm not going to call it cute, but it is talking points. Uh, and I think that we actually have something much more substantive to say. Again, the unique experience of black people uh, in this country, right? Like we have um, an experience on these soils of sort of like forced castration and uh, limited uh, birth and having, you know, born babies taken away from uh, parents and mothers, right? Uh, we have uh, the experience of, um, you know, the the eugenics conversation uh, that was at the very beginning of this sort of, you know, quote, abortion rights uh, movement uh, in this country. Uh, it was targeted at, at black people, poor people. Uh, so we have that perspective uh, and it is unique and it is needful uh, in this conversation, again, you know, I would say no matter uh, even where you end up on that conversation, there is a unique perspective uh, that we can bring uh, to that conversation. And then on the other side, when you do think about issues of um, of justice and um, equity in this country, uh, you cannot, uh, in the case of uh, Herschel Walker, be 
passive uh, and, and, and even at, at points dismissive of those issues. And again, the black church has a unique perspective. You have a community of people. Uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about the uh, one of the elders in my church was one of the first uh, people who I talked with when I was getting ready to uh, when I was shaping up the congressional campaign. Uh, and he's now uh, I think he's 75 or 76, grew up in Mississippi. Um, you know, and, and experienced racism, experienced police uh, brutality and police uh, disrespect. No person, uh, I think, on the planet uh, is more committed to the cause of justice than is uh, Elder George in my church. At the same time, you have a man who's very committed to order uh, and wants to see order and safety in the community, wants to be able to call the police. Uh, and so, again, you have a community with a very unique perspective here with a, a, a very deep understanding of why you need, you know, policing and communities and why you need serious public safety infrastructures and a deep understanding of why you need uh, to address issues of, of racial injustice uh, and, and a lack of equity across the society. Uh, and so, again, I think that the erasure of black Christian witness in our civic discourse is to the the overall detriment of our society, right? Uh, and this is not to put forward that like black Christians are the savior of you know American democracy, but I do think there is a a serious and um, important and unique perspective uh, that we can bring. Uh, to our discourse, uh, and it's missing right now, and it is it, it is not good for anybody uh, that it is missing. Uh, and I do think that you know, folks like you, Justin, who have the the good privilege of actually having a a vote in the state of Georgia, uh, have a a, a a massive opportunity uh, to push on this and to and to gain something out of the opportunity. Uh, and even those of us who are not voting in Georgia, because this is, like I said, probably the most watched uh, Senate race in the country. I think everybody thinks that both parties really need Georgia uh, in order to, to have control of the Senate. And so for all of us, there's just a, a massive opportunity to not take uh, this sort of easy binary approach to this uh, election and maybe make some gains for the overall discourse uh, because of the opportunity that's presented there in Georgia. Yeah, that's right. It is an opportunity. And I think it's an opportunity to speak up. It's an opportunity to reframe the conversation, to say what, what what's right and what's not. Uh, because when I think of the black church, I think of faith, perseverance and dignity. The dignity to stand for something, the dignity not to let something outside of what you know is right, dictate your public witness. The the dignity and the integrity to lead, even if it means I might not break a fundraising record. That's what I think about. And so as we have this conversation, again, this is all out of love, man. This is an internal, in my opinion, an internal conversation out of love to make some corrections based on some things that aren't going the way that they may seem or be perceived from the outside. If we can't have a conversation to correct our community to say we, we can do something, some things better, then we're in trouble. 
And I want to be very clear. This doesn't mean that neither person has no connection to uh, the black church or doesn't uh, have a real desire to represent, you know, people in the black church. Uh, That's great. I, I think that can be that can be right. But there's things that are a little out of order. The thing there's some things that aren't what they seem and we need to deal with that. And let's be clear on something else. Even if I prefer that one candidate wins this election, even if that's my preference, even if I say, you know what, I am at the end of the day going to vote for this candidate, going to support this candidate. In my position right now, on this podcast, in the organization that I, I lead, it's not my job to make sure they win or not to criticize them so that they win. That's not my role, Doc. I'm certain that devoted conservatives and progressive activists will provide plenty of resources to make that happen. And maybe they can uh, and maybe you find that as your job to make that happen. I'm here to try to say what needs to be said, regardless of who I want to win that race, because a lot of people come at the end campaign when we say something about Trump or we say something about Biden, like, how dare you say something about the candidate that could help the other candidate win? My job is not to make sure that I don't say anything about the person I want to win or you want to win or any community wants to win. That's not my job. That may be your job. There's people making millions of dollars for that to be their job. That's not my job. My job is to call it like I see it and try to represent the gospel the best I can in the public square and call things out that I don't think are right. That's my job. Chris, you want to take us out of here? Hopefully people can see that this, this is not trying to make either person win. I think we are calling, calling ourselves uh, to, to take stock of what we're doing with our witness uh, in the black church. I still think that the black church has an incredibly potent position in our democracy uh, and in our discourse, and this this midterm, definitely in the state of Georgia, but I think all across the country, uh, is a significant moment and a significant opportunity for us to be able to uh, to raise that voice and use that power. Um, and this is this is just an encouragement for us to do it. Honestly, if by some means Herschel Walker and or Senator Warnock actually hear this podcast, I want to say that this is uh, at least for me is is meant to be an encouragement uh even to them that they don't have to just reflect those most extreme uh portions of the communities that they're trying to represent right like you can add to this conversation because we do as the black church have something uh unique to add this is a challenge in hopes that things are corrected that's all it is. I, I would rather I would always rather uh, err on the side of, of being the prophet Amos than Amaziah the priest. And that's who we are on this podcast. We will be right back on the church politics podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the Ant Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. That was a heavy one. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Um, Moving along to uh, another subject real quick. Uh, There's some recall elections going on in America that I think have some pretty broad and serious implications. Just so you know, a recall election is a process that allows voters to uh, remove an elected official before the regularly scheduled election at the end of their term. So let's say I'm in office, I have a four-year term, and people think I've been doing so bad that they want to get me out before that term is up, they would have a recall election. In 39 states, various officials can be subject to recall. Usually you have to compile a certain number of signatures, a large number of signatures from registered voters to warrant a recall election. And what's going on today uh, in San Francisco, in fact, by the time you're hearing this, this election probably will be decided, is San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Budin, uh, Boudin, I think it is, is going uh, through a recall election uh, as we speak. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, crime has risen. He's having some 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 real problems. He was a former uh, uh, public defender. He runs for a DA. He ends up winning. Uh, and then they, you know, a- as things were happening and people weren't happy with it, he's uh, going into this recall election. The funny part about it and, and what's not all uh, all that unique, I guess, is that he has branded the recall election a Republican recall. In the city of San Francisco, <laughs> there are less than 7 percent of the registered voters in San Francisco are Republicans. But as we always do. He's called it a Republican recall. I was just I won't say any names, but there was a certain Chicago mayor that was blaming everything that's going on in the city somehow on uh, the national uh, kind of conservative movement. Um, one of the things that he came in to do, Chris, uh, is he refused and he he ran on this. So just like the conversation we were just having, you you get what you vote for. Right. He ran on a refusal to prosecute low level nonviolent crime. So you have these smash and grab shoplifting incidences. You have auto break ins that have just gone wild. I mean, you, I know all of you have seen on on social media people basically in San Francisco and other uh, uh, places in the area going into stores, grabbing stuff and just walking out. Why? Because they're not going to be prosecuted. What do you expect? You know, what do you expect uh, people to do? Um so th- that's what's going on. I think, you know, the fact that he- I don't know if he's going to win or lose, Chris, the fact that he was recalled in a city like that is a major statement, right? That That's a statement in and of itself. So even if he pulls this out to be recalled in San Francisco for not for being kind of soft on crime as a prosecutor 
says a lot. And I'll be honest with you, and I think you were in the same space. I was never big on the overly progressive like prosecutor, right? The prosecutor that comes in is basically a defense attorney. Um, now, I do want reform. I want people to be fair. I want to make sure that that people are not mistreated in, in the courts, that there's no partiality, that uh, that um, prosecutors are treating people with care. But there's also a an opposite error. And I see, think some of these very progressive prosecutors are making that error. Uh, any thoughts on this, Chris? Yeah, I think that um, it's really interesting that we're seeing this uh, in uh, San Francisco uh, because it, it speaks to something that's happening across the country. Uh, we are having our own sort of experience of this here in Chicago uh, and in Cook County where uh, you have similar dynamics playing out, uh, violent crime uh, being on the rise in the midst of this conversation around, uh, you know, not prosecuting, um, you know, quote, low-level crime. Uh, and, you know, if, if I can quickly say, I think that we have a, a, a little bit, again, of one of those rational uh, responses, because uh, when you think about uh, sort of uh, sort of tough on crime and uh, mandatory uh, uh, sort of prosecutions and those types of things, uh, they do, those types of words do hearken uh, in our communities uh, to, you know, war on drugs and a, a very turbulent time uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s, especially, uh, where a lot of people in our community got thrown into jail uh, because of their drug addiction. But I think we have to be able to set drug crime apart from violent crime. Uh, smash and grab at a clothing store is not the same as a drug addiction. Um, carjacking or shooting somebody is just not the same uh, as a drug addiction. Uh, and I think we're finally seeing uh, in cities across the country where people don't want to live in a city where they don't feel safe in their homes, they don't feel safe uh, uh, on the streets. I mean, in San Francisco, like in Chicago, a lot of people don't feel safe, uh, even in the city center. Um, you know, the, the sort of downtown, you know, sort of uh, what's supposed to be, you know, the sort of touristy attraction places, uh, there's this, this lack of safety. Uh, and so I think people are wanting... Uh, another type of response. And even uh, like you said, Justin, by the time folks hear this podcast, this recall vote will probably have already taken place. I think however it comes down, uh, it says a lot, uh, even to see a recall make the ballot um, in San Francisco, mostly based on the idea that we have not been uh, taking crime seriously. And I'll say this last thing uh, and I'll be done. I think that, you know, as a person who does want uh, justice, who does want reform uh, in our criminal justice system, I think it's really important um, for us to understand inside of the criminal justice system, uh, it's incredibly important that we have uh, sort of adversarial relationships. Uh, and, and what I mean is a prosecutor has got to play that role in the system, right? Like if, if you're a prosecutor, your job is to prosecute crime. Uh, you know, we have a public defender. 
their job is to be that public defender. We have advocacy groups um, who also are part of, uh, you know, that system. And I think when we understand how the institutions are organized uh, and have people who are just um, and, and compassionate, but committed to their role within the institution, that's when we're going to have uh, the best type of success, right? Like we, we don't want prosecutors who are indifferent about prosecuting crime, right? Like you, you kind of want a prosecutor who is zealous for prosecuting crime uh, and let the other adversarial places within the institutions uh, and within our broader society play their role to sort of bring us to the, uh, to the place where we want to be. No, that's, that's, that's really good. And the things folks got to realize, if you have a prosecutor that doesn't want to prosecute, you're hurting the people that you say you're protecting. So you can say, you know, I, I am trying to stop mass incarceration of black men. That's great. But if you don't prosecute, if you're only prosecuting just the violent crimes, even the smaller crimes hurt black businesses, hurt the neighborhood in general, because money doesn't want to come into those areas. Right. We've got to do it. So there's a better way to go about it than the law and order without justice or the leniency without wisdom or justice. Right. Um, so so something to think about. Hey, man, you can recall somebody, but to recall means you voted them in. And a lot of what he did is what he said he was going to do. Um, and so that that's another conversation within itself. Uh, well, Chris, man, I thought this was a. Very solid uh, conversation. Again, we're always going to try to bring the truth. We're always going to try to uh, make sure that we are thoughtful in how we we go about this, but not spare anyone uh, just because we don't want any pushback. So I hope we accomplish that today. As usual, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom.